Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 21. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a series in the ministry of the prophet Elijah. We come this morning to what perhaps may be a familiar passage. If not, it is a wonderful picture of the Lord, of his power and his grace, but also the sinfulness of man. And so we hear the word of God spoken to us many hundreds of years ago. This is God's word. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. 
I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, Yahweh also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom Yahweh cast out before the people of Israel. Now when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of Yahweh came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you for the Lord's day, a day to retreat from all the cares and worries of this world, to focus our hearts upon you. We thank you, O Lord, that you have given to us this word, the Bible, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. O Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts would you encourage us? Would you instruct us? Lord, would you reveal to us once again who you are, who we are, who you have called us to be? Oh Lord, would our hearts be lifted up to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our substitute, our Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. When Christians experience affliction and suffering, we often respond in one of two opposite ways. On the one hand, we can be surprised and, and shocked by suffering. We can cry out in anger and disbelief, what in the world is this? Why is this happening to me? This was not supposed to be the way things turned out. I'm a Christian. I have served God faithfully. On the other hand, we can be overwhelmed by suffering. We can be dismayed to the point of losing heart, of losing all hope that our circumstances will ever change, will ever be made better. We moan in despair, of course this is happening to me. Now, as in all of our responses, these responses to suffering are tied to our expectations, aren't they? If suffering is something that we don't expect, something that we don't think should happen, something that we don't think we deserve, then yes, we will be surprised by it. Whereas if we see something that, that just suffering is something that just follows us around the way a shadow does throughout a sunny day, if we think that we always seem to draw the short end of the stick, if, if suffering is just inescapably our lot in life, then yes, we will tend to be overwhelmed by it. Well, in our passage this morning, we see a particular form of suffering, the suffering of oppression and injustice in the civil sphere, the government afflicting the people of God for their faithfulness to him. 
It happened in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. It happens all over our world every day in places like India and China and Afghanistan and Pakistan and so many more. It even happens in our own country, though to a lesser degree. Unfortunately, we have a, a constitutional foundation of religious freedom. We live in a country that has a court system that allows redress and appeal to, to higher courts to, to, to alleviate state injustice. But far more Christians live in countries where these privileges are not known and experienced than, than do have these privileges. And whether we have them or not, in a world where state oppression exists, we need to hear and to listen and to pay attention to this story of, of Ahab and Naboth. For in it, God teaches us to avoid both of the responses that I just mentioned. God says here in this text, don't be surprised by oppression. But he also says, don't be overwhelmed by oppression. I want us to, to think about those two things this morning and then sort of a third thing that perhaps will catch you off guard. First, God will say to us in this story, don't be surprised by oppression. In our text, we find Ahab at his vacation palace in Jezreel, about 20 miles north of his capital city of Samaria. He's built this second residence right next to a, a vineyard owned by a local man named Naboth. If location is everything in real estate, then Naboth is in the right place at the right time. Right? He's seen his property value increase exponentially. And here comes the king. Maybe this has happened to you. Someone knocks on your door. I want to buy your house. Right? Ahab walks, knocks on Naboth's house and says, I want to make an offer right, for your land that's right next to my land because I want to turn it into a vegetable garden. How can Naboth refuse this opportunity? A better vineyard right? or, or the, the value of his vineyard that has gone up because he's next to the, the king's house in silver? Ahab here is not acting like a, a Canaanite king who would just go and take whatever land he wanted to have. No, he knows that he needs to, to pay for this land the, the way that we experience it here in America. The Fifth Amendment, our Constitution, as it's uh, you know, 2,500 years after this story, where it tells us that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Right? We're used to that. And here Ahab is, is living in that same sort of mindset. And yet Naboth refuses. He refuses. Now, what's going on here? Maybe you've had a situation with, with your family, your extended family perhaps, where uh, you owned attractive land and, and someone wanted to buy it from you. Maybe it was even the state. They wanted to, to, to make an offer for your land and, and you go back and forth perhaps with family members trying to, to figure out what are we going to do. And, and there are various reasons why you might decide not to sell your land to this, uh, this larger entity or, or to the state. But, but you've never had a reason like Naboth had. You've never been in Naboth's situation because you don't live under the Mosaic Covenant. Notice that Naboth invokes Yahweh's name and the reason that he gives for refusing. Verse 3, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You see, Naboth knew that what Ahab was asking him to do was to disobey God. In Leviticus chapter 25 God had commanded that the land of Israel was not to be sold permanently because it actually belonged to God and not to the Israelite. God had leased it to the various tribes of Israel as stewards. In Numbers 36, we read that the inheritance of one tribe was not to be sold to another tribe. 
but was to remain in the family that it had originally been given to. The only time that someone could sell their land was when they became uh, desperately poor. And even then, a close relative, a kinsman redeemer, was supposed to buy the, ba- the land back into the family. And if there was no close relative, if, if there was no kinsman redeemer, then in the year of Jubilee, at the, every 50th year, the land would revert back to the original owner. Now, Naboth wasn't poor, clearly. And so those provisions in Leviticus 25 of of being able to sell the land didn't apply to him. And so he's taken aback by this request. It staggers him. And he categorically denies it. No, I'm not going to sell you my land. Yahweh forbid that I would do such a thing and and sell you the inheritance of my fathers, that which has been passed down to me and that which I am going to pass down to my own children. Here Naboth is thinking theologically. He's thinking covenantally. He's not thinking economically or pragmatically. How could he cut off his descendants from their heritage? How could he do what God had explicitly forbidden him to do? And so instead of disobeying the king of kings, he refuses to obey or to heed the request of the king of Israel. And so Ahab returns to Samaria, vexed and sullen, to the point where he refuses to eat. He just lays down on his bed with his face turned toward the wall, the epitome of a pouting pity party. We've all seen it. We've all been there. We've all done it, right? And Jezebel, his wife, comes to find out what's wrong with her husband. And, And when he explains what Naboth had said, she sarcastically mocks him, right? Verse 7, do you now govern Israel? What sort of a king are you? What kind of a king have I married? Stop pouting. Let me show you how we do it up in Phoenicia, where I come from. Let me show you how we get what we want, how the law is not over us, but we are the law. You're the king. I will give you the land of Naboth, the Jezreelite, as a gift. And then, like a mafia matriarch, she sends these letters to the elders and leaders of Jezreel. She commands them to set up this kangaroo court to find two false witnesses to frame poor Naboth for blasphemy of all things, to execute him. And from 2 Kings chapter 9, we actually find out that they didn't just execute Naboth, they actually executed his sons as well, so there would be no one who could make a claim to the land. This is legal oppression. It's also religious oppression, isn't it? They call a day of prayer and fasting as if the city had committed a great sin and needed to, to figure out who had done it, what had happened. They, 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 they carry out this plot uh, disingenuously following God's commands to have two witnesses. And what do those two witnesses accuse Naboth of but blasphemy, a religious charge? This is religious abuse, religious oppression. And when they've carried out their plot, they send word back to Jezebel who lets Ahab know that Naboth is dead, that that he can go now and get that vineyard for free that he formerly had been willing to pay money for. Ahab gladly travels down the mountain to Jezreel to plant his vegetable garden. What do we have here but unjust eminent domain, unjust, oppressive, eminent domain, the taking of private land for public purposes by killing off the landowner. And this isn't some outlier event. It's happened throughout world history. It continues to happen 
here and across the world. There is unjust eminent domain, not necessarily the killing off of someone, right? but the abuse of power, oppression, even for religious purposes. What is God trying to show us here? Well, listen to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. If you see oppression of the poor, do not be shocked at the sight. Don't be surprised by oppression, the author of Kings is telling us. The suffering of oppression at the hand of governments should never shock or surprise us. Even injustice that is perpetrated in the name of justice or in the name of religion. The Bible is full of state oppression, isn't it? You can think of Saul oppressing David. Think of the prophets at the hands of Jezebel and all the other wicked kings and queens. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. Think of the apostles beaten by the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities. And think of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was unjustly oppressed. Indeed, I think Naboth here in this story is a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Each owned a vineyard. Jesus' vineyard was, of course, the church. Each obeyed God, though they were tempted to part with their inheritance. Jesus in the garden, or excuse me, in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. Each was conspired against by people who cared nothing for God's law, but pretended that they did. Each was falsely accused with a charge of blasphemy. Each suffered unjustly, and each was executed outside the city. As Carl mentioned, Jesus' parable in Matthew 21 of the vineyard and the vine growers who kill the heir and seize the inheritance. There's an echo of this story here in 1 Kings 21. And as Jesus tells us in Matthew, John chapter 15, verse 20, he says, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Right? Nabal's story is presenting us with this sober reality that, that faithful believers should expect injustice at the hands of the state. Now, yes, again, we live in a country with the great privilege of having this constitutional foundation and a Judeo-Christian ethic, but you only have to look at the last 20 or 30 years to know that it is not outside the realm of possibility that Christians might one day endure widespread oppression. And if that day comes, and we need to remember Naboth. We need to listen to Naboth, who will tell us, don't be surprised. Naboth would agree with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised by oppression. But Naboth would also tell us a second thing. He would tell us, don't be overwhelmed by oppression. Don't be overwhelmed by oppression. If the first section of this chapter keeps us from being overly optimistic, the next section keeps us from being overly pessimistic, from losing heart, from falling into dismay and despair, for it reminds us that there is a God who sees all, a God who will judge, who will repay each and every oppressive, lawless, wicked deed at the proper time. Now, it seems that 
No sooner had Ahab arrived in Jezreel to take possession of Naboth's vineyard that God sends Elijah to confront him for his wicked murder and theft, to pronounce doom upon him. Verse 19, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood? Now Ahab's response, isn't it, is telling. Verse 20, have you found me, O my enemy? Now, it's never a good sign if you move from calling God's prophet the troubler of Israel in chapter 18 to now you're calling him my enemy, right? That's not a good movement, not a good direction. Elijah, the king of, the author of the book of Kings, they hit the nail on the head, don't they? When they say in verse 20 and 25 that, that, that Ahab sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Verse 25 says there was no one so wicked as he. He had given himself over to slavery, to sin. He'd given himself over to self-centered discontentment and covetousness, not content with his own inheritance, but lusting after and desiring the inheritance of another, Nabal. He had given himself over to marriage with an unbeliever who he allowed to incite him to sin, verse 25 tells us. He'd given himself over to idolatry, verse 26 says. And verse 22, he'd given himself over to making others join with him in his sin. And so God there in verse 21 declares disaster upon Ahab and his house. He and his whole household will be consumed and burned up just like the household of King Jeroboam and King Baasha before him. His wife Jezebel as well will be eaten by dogs and Jezreel and his offspring will be eaten by dogs and, and birds, become dog food and bird food. It's a gruesome ending to this horrible, wicked man. It's fulfilled in stages, to be sure. If you go and you read 2 Kings 9 and 10, you will see how King Jehu in Israel eventually fulfills all of these prophecies in the lives of Ahab's house. There is a reason, right, why many people don't name their children Ahab or Jezebel, Right? You don't often hear of those names, especially among the church. But here's the point. It's found there in Ahab's question. Have you found me? Of course he has. Of course God has found you. Nothing, no one escapes God's all-seeing eye. What does Proverbs 15 verse 3 say? The eyes of Yahweh are in every place watching the evil and the good Zechariah 4, verse 10, the eyes of Yahweh range to and fro throughout the earth. Matthew 10, 26, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Hebrews 4, verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Romans 2, verse 16, God will judge the secrets of of men through Christ Jesus. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. We could go on and on and on. The Bible is clear. These verses apply, yes, to, to all the actions and words and thoughts of, of every single person, every single one of us. But especially do they apply, as we look at this text, to the persecution that comes to the apple of God's eye, as Zechariah puts it, the church of God. Those who persecute the church of God will be found out. God will lift the lid off of the conspiracies and the plots against his people, and he will judge all oppressors, all abusers, all persecutors. 
You see, God is the one who truly has imminent domain, who truly has sovereignty over all the realms that he has created, over all of his creatures and all of their actions. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we must not be overwhelmed by oppression. We must not be overwhelmed by it. To be sure, God's judgment may not come at the pace or the time that that we desire. It certainly didn't come in time to keep Naboth and his sons from being killed. And yet God's timing is never off. God's timing is never wrong. God always hears the cries of his saints for justice. And he will bring justice to bear in his time. Now don't think that that this lesson, that this principle is just merely some Old Testament principle. All right, what does Paul write in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8? He tells us this, For it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Do not be overwhelmed by oppression. God is the judge. What does he say to us in the book of Revelation chapter 6 about the martyrs who, who cry out to him with a loud voice day and night, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And what is God's answer But in the very next verses, we read in Revelation 6 that they will soon hear the the kings of the earth say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is a truth. The Lord God Almighty and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he will bring all oppression to an end. And therefore, we do not need to be dismayed. We do not need to be afraid or overwhelmed by oppression, by persecution, by injustice. So do you see how this story, it keeps us from falling off the cliff on either side, of being surprised and shocked or being overwhelmed and, and, and completely you know, just falling apart because of what we're experiencing or what we hear about in the world. And yet there is a third point here, isn't there? And it's this, that we are not to be surprised or overwhelmed by oppression. We are to be amazed by God's mercy to oppressors. This story ends in a way that we don't expect it to end, do we? And don't you wonder what Elijah's response was to this? Was his response the response of Jonah to to the repentance of the Ninevites? The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. But we do know what God has revealed to us is that when Ahab heard God's denunciation and judgment upon him through Elijah, the words hit home. The words struck him. And so we read in verse 27, Ahab tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Isn't it interesting, right? Before he was going about dejectedly and not eating because of uh, of his sullenness regarding the fact that Naboth wouldn't give him his land. And now... It's in response to the word of God, to the the judgment that has been pronounced upon him. 
Now, you have to ask the question, don't you? Is this genuine and, and godly sorrow that produces a repentance without regret, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7? Or is this worldly sorrow, mere remorse, that produces death? Is Ahab grieving his sin, or is he just grieving the fact that he got caught? Is he just grieving the, the judgment that was pronounced upon him? That often is the case, isn't it? And I think it appears to be that case here. Because as we see as the story goes on, Ahab doesn't actually forsake his idols. He doesn't actually give the land of Naboth back. Right? In the next chapter, he's going to tell us that he, he still hates Micaiah, the prophet of Yahweh. He hates the prophet of God. Now, ultimately, I think this was a rending of the garments without rending the heart, as Joel would put it. And yet, look at what God says. God calls this Ahab humbling himself before me. And even this temporary remorse is recognized. Elijah, have you seen this? Do you see what Ahab is doing? And it's rewarded. God shows mercy to Ahab. He postpones the judgment. He doesn't cancel it, but he postpones the judgment to his whole house. It will not happen in his days, but in the days of his sons. I love how Ralph Davis puts it. The God who is tenacious in justice, is also tender in mercy. The delay of justice that we see here in Ahab's story, what is it but a manifestation of the kindness of God, calling him, calling you to a truer, to a deeper, to a, a more full and genuine repentance. How the kindness of God, even to oppressors, is magnified here in this story. How amazing is the mercy of our king. I love how Matthew Henry explains it. He, he writes this, this encourages all those that truly repent and unfeignedly believe the holy gospel. For if a pretending partial penitent shall go home to his house reprieved, doubtless a sincere penitent shall go to his house justified. Do you see how this story holds out for us? The hope of forgiveness, the hope of mercy and grace. If God will treat Ahab this way, how much more will he treat one who truly sorrows and grieves over and hates his sin? This story of Naboth and, a, and Ahab and Jezebel should lead us to hate our sin, to long to be free of our sin, to flee to God for mercy in Jesus Christ. For that is what we receive in the gospel of Jesus. When we repent and believe in him, no matter how wicked we have been, we receive the mercy and grace that will never be taken away. Think about it. Naboth lost his inheritance. But Jesus, through his unjust suffering, has gained for us an inheritance that can never be taken away from us. What did we sing earlier? That we, the people of God, believing in this life, compared to the saints who've already gone before us, right, they may be more, they may be more uh, what was the word, more blessed than we are, but they are not more secure than we are. We are just as secure 
as those who have already gone to be with Jesus. Our inheritance is imperishable. It can never be taken away. It can never be defiled, says Peter. And this is all because of the grace and mercy of God in Christ that we celebrate here at this table. So as you read this story, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised by oppression. Don't be overwhelmed by oppression. But do be amazed by the mercy of God, the kindness of God. And if you don't know the Lord God Almighty through Jesus Christ, then in this story, you need to see yourself. You are Ahab, sold in slavery to sin. But there is hope for the repentant sinner. There is hope for the one who would flee sin and turn to Jesus Christ. May the Lord continue to give us this knowledge of our sinfulness, a knowledge of his mercy and grace, a confidence that he is sovereign over all, no matter what happens to us as the people of God here in this life. And we come to the table celebrating our suffering Savior and all that he has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us in the gospel. Oh Lord, help us never to take your mercy and grace for granted. Help us daily to be surprised at the gospel that you would treat sinners like us with such mercy and kindness. Oh Lord, we know that it is indeed your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we ask that even this morning as we meditate upon our own sinfulness around the table, as we meditate upon our own sinfulness even here in this text, Lord, would you grant to us the ability to turn from our sin, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, out of a a true sense of our sin and an apprehension of your mercy to us in Christ, we pray that you would grant to us true and genuine repentance, true and heartfelt faith in Jesus, resting and receiving and leaning upon him alone for our salvation, fleeing from our dead works. Lord, we come rejoicing, thankful for who you are and what you have done for us in your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.